Hello and welcome to Food Focus, a podcast providing an opportunity for conversations and perspectives on issues of interest in the food system. My name is Mike Von Massow. I'm a faculty member in Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph and the OAC Chair in Food Systems Leadership. As host, my objective is to discuss, challenge and learn about topical issues related to food in a way that's accessible to a broad audience. Today, our topic is supply management. My guest is Dr. Alphonse Weersink, who's also a faculty member in my department. We thought we would have this conversation because we're hearing, particularly in Canada, a lot about supply management in the context of evolving trade agreements with the U.S. and other countries. And really, I think there is considerable uncertainty or a lack of understanding of what supply management is, how it works, and what some of the strengths and weaknesses are. So I sat down with Al and said, Let's talk about those factors related to supply management and hopefully bring a broader base of understanding of the issue to you. So, without further ado, here is our conversation. Well, hello and, and welcome again. Today, uh, my guest is Dr. Al Weersink, a friend, colleague, faculty member here in the Department of Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics. We're going to talk a little bit about supply management, particularly around dairy. I think, Al, you and I have had this conversation lots of times up in the grad lounge, and and you won't hear glasses clinking today. But I really hoped to take an opportunity to talk about what it is, why it is, and what the strengths and weaknesses are. So thanks for coming today. Yeah, pleasure. So we're hearing a lot. I, I think the average Canadian doesn't think about supply management very much, but we're hearing a lot in the context of trade talks and Every once in a while, something bubbles to the surface where people say, well, we shouldn't have supply management anymore. But but I think a lot of people don't know what it is. What is supply management? Well, supply management is just as the name says, you are managing the supply. And they are doing that by controlling the amount that each individual farmer can produce to meet the demands of the domestic uh, market. And so there are controls on the levels that each individual farmer can produce. So essentially we say, okay, here's what we need in this country. We divide that up amongst the, the farmers. They get a quota, produce that much, and, and that sort of stabilizes the market. That's right. So there's little variation in the amount of production, and there's little variation in prices as a result. And it's one of the, the reasons for supply management that you'll hear the advocates for it. Okay. So why do we do it? Well, I think we have to go back into history and, and, to, and to look at why it was put in place initially. And, um, and it was put in place because farmers were getting ripped off. I think that would be the fair way of, uh, of describing it. Milk is a perishable product, and uh, there were differences in the prices that were received by uh, neighboring farmers selling to different processors. And that's because milk is a perishable product and the processors had some market power and saying, well, this is a price where we're going to give you, but things have changed and and now we can't give you that same price. So farmers banded together and said, we are going to form a single death selling agency. We're going to form this cooperative where all milk comes together and then will be sold to the processors and every farmer receives the same price. And so that was the initial justification for having supply management. And, and that was enabled by uh, federal and provincial legislation that said, okay, we will provide the power to 
control both production and price to bodies under a regulatory authority. Because there are other commodities that have maybe not, well, there are other commodities that have specifically supply management, chicken, eggs, turkey, uh, but there are other also commodities that have central desk selling where, where they try and leverage some joint power without having supply management. So, so dairy isn't that unique necessarily. No, it, it isn't. And the idea of a single desk selling agency has been in place for a number of years in agriculture. Um, the Canadian Wheat Board would be one of the main examples. The pork producers had a similar sort of arrangement. Dairy is unique in that it has stayed over time, and I think it's partially to do with the market is essentially domestic. You know, we look at, uh, at hogs, we look at wheat, the vast majority of that product is sold overseas. Yeah. And so, there, you know, there's a major difference in terms of the, the characteristic of the commodity. Not only is it perishable, but most of it is consumed domestically. Yeah, my sense with milk, too, is, is, is we have a, not, not only the perishability but, but we have a bit of an emotional attachment to to dairy because we feed it to our kids because it, it, it is it is an important food security or, or food sovereignty product. I think yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think if you ask somebody from an urban area to paint a picture of a typical or conventional farm, it would have black and white cows grazing outside of a red bank barn. And so maybe that is part of what you're talking Some about as romantic. well. Some of the romantic. Yeah. One, one of the th- I, many years ago, uh, not long after I finished my master's, I wrote a piece saying that supply management wouldn't work for apples. There was some discussion in Ontario about broadening the number of commodities that had supply management. And I argued that apples didn't work because it was hard to put a quota on apples and, and what is a table apple and what is a processing apple varies depending on the year. I also think that some of the products that are supply managed have characteristics that make them sort of uniquely suitable to supply management. It would be much much more difficult to do given biological uncertainty, production uncertainty in other commodities. Right, so so right. part of it may be the characteristic of those products. Yes, yeah. You've got a very homogeneous product in the terms of milk that farmers are producing. And as you mentioned you you know how much you're going to produce in a year. It's not subject to rains or well, yeah. Or, we have a little bit of seasonal vari- variability with with mm-hmm. the weather, and we've gotten around that. But to a significant degree, we can predict. And milk is milk. You know, yeah. we may have some variability in protein and fat ratios, but milk is milk. There's not a lot of quality variation depending on a bad year. Right, right. Now that's true too. And and I think one of the reasons for the staying power of this single desk selling agency is the nature of dairy production. It's very labor intensive. You know, farmers are there at least twice a day, uh, if not more, feeding and milking cows seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks of the year. And so that's controlled the size of the operation to a certain extent. In contrast, if we look at what's happened with the Canadian Wheat Board, that was set up for very much the same reason. Somebody from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, would have difficulty selling their wheat on an international market. So we'll group things together. So the, that farmer from Moose Jaw, that farmer from Vauxhall, Alberta, would all have the uh, marketing abilities of somebody through the Canadian Wheat Board. And 
farmers were relatively homogeneous, but same sort of size, producing things, did not know how to sell on the export market. But things changed significantly from the inception of the wheat board. And we've got we have big differences in the size and the marketing ability of individual producers who felt they could do better outside the system. And that forced the, the internal pressures to change as well as some external. So I think what we're seeing in the dairy sector is we don't have those same external or internal pressures for change. It definitely has had, we've seen more of it, but not to the same extent as we've had in other commodities, which did have a single death cell agency, but no longer do. Yeah, and I think, again, it gets back to transportation infrastructure mm-hmm. has changed significantly. Mm-hmm. You know, things ship much more easily, and we're not blending Canada number one and Canada spring, red spring number two. We're, we're, we're picking for protein levels and, and much more flexibility and individuality within commodities, which mm-hmm. makes it much more difficult to manage. And if you look at even, there have been some growing pains even within supply managed commodities like chicken, for example, when different customers started demanding different size chickens, it makes it much more difficult to, to manage quota. Right. Uh, so again, it gets back to the characteristics of the product. Mm-hmm. One of the ironies, I think, Al, is that part of the reason we're seeing more attention and more fingers pointing at supply management is the fact that milk prices are low in other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing complaints of grocery stores putting downward pressure on milk prices and dairy producers hurting significantly in other countries, including in the U.S., which has mm-hmm. probably led to the friction over NAFTA. But all of that said, there is significant support for dairy industries almost universally. Just not everyone chooses supply management. Is that Yeah, that's fair. They've, you know, the the level of support has changed over time in in these regions. You know, if we look at the U.S., it's a very complicated milk support system. There is there is support that it comes through the purchase of processed products, which then feeds back to the prices that farmers would receive. There is also support in terms of maybe it might be water. It might be might be labor issues or the lack of them, uh, which allows some of the, the large uh, operations to exist in, in the United States. Um, yeah. so, sorry to interrupt. One of the ironies is that, that one of the new provisions negotiated in NAFTA is that 60% of every off- automobile needs to be made by labor making greater than $16 an hour. If that was extended to dairy products, some would argue that U.S. milk or U.S. dairy products wouldn't come into Canada because that's just not the case. It relies heavily on migrant labor and, in fact, a lot of illegal labor. Yeah, that's true. And there, there's a study not that came out a couple of years ago from uh, University of California Davis that showed some regulations in the in the San Joaquin Valley regarding labor and wages had shifted some of the production back to Mexico, and uh, it's a it's a significant form. And as we talked about earlier, labor is still a very significant part of producing milk. Despite having robotic milkers and other new technology, it's still relatively labor intensive. Good. So given all of that, has supply management achieved its objectives from 40 or 50 years ago when it was introduced? Has it done what 
the farmers and the policymakers wanted it to do? I think it's done what the farmers wanted it to do, which was to eliminate the volatility in the price and to ensure a fair return. And they definitely got stable prices just by the nature of how prices are established and a decent return because they essentially look at the cost of producing milk, which is obtained through a detailed survey of uh, farmers and base the price to ensure that there's a reasonable return for the average producer. So in that way, uh, it has met the, the objectives of the farmers. And meeting the objectives of the farmers, was that the sort of the primary objective of introducing supply management was providing that stability and of prices? I think it was. I think that was the primary reason uh, for it, given, you know, looking back again at that historical view of farmers suffering at that point in time, very much like American farmers are right now. And uh, and I don't think, you know, if we look two years ago, dairy farmers were doing very well. Dairy prices cycle in the same way that global dairy prices cycle in the same way that uh, that beef and pork and and wheat prices well, but mostly livestock prices. But at the time when supply management was implemented, it was low, low and and significant differences spatially for the same product, and it just didn't seem fair. And the system has has implemented a fairness to the way that prices are. And, and there were probably and there continue to be differences in the prices for milk that goes into cheese and other processed products, <coughs> and prices and milk that goes for fluid. Right, mm-hmm. milk is not milk, and so. Some of those pricing differences, those inequities, were probably whether you lived close to a cheese plant or whether you lived close to a city and fluid milk plants. And so we didn't only sort of stabilize milk prices, we, we sort of made everyone be treated the same. Very much so. Okay. Yeah, good. So given all of that, sounds like sunshine and roses, Al. And, <laughs> and why, why, what are the complaints? What, what, are, what are the things that, that are driving people to say cartel and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Why is there at least a group of Canadians who are saying we shouldn't have it anymore? So, let's see. The There's a group that were complaining before the trade negotiations. And let's characterize their argument as that there were significant rents that were earned by the farmers because the prices were above the marginal cost of producing milk. and those rents were capitalized into the value of quota. The so right for, to for a layperson, they were making more than they should have, and and so the quota got value. The quota obtained value. That's right. And in many cases, the value of that quota was worth more than the value of the, the other assets that the farmers owned. So significant values associated with and, it. And so, A, the first argument is that because we're creating that value, it means we're paying people too much for milk. Sort of secondary arguments to that would be it makes it very difficult for young people to get into farming. It makes turning over dairy farms very difficult because of the value of the asset. It's not unlike, frankly, you know, another example of supply management is taxi licenses mm-hmm. in the city. Exactly. Right? This isn't unique. Exactly. No, <laughs> and, it's not and, at all. And so you, know, you see people who can't afford to buy a taxi license. Because they've become too valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the argument with the having high quota values, one is that perhaps the price is too high and that consumers are paying more for dairy products and, 
And we, we can talk about yeah. that a little bit more. But I think the other argument that is more important for the farmers is that it builds in a high cost structure. So the first generation of producers received this quota for nothing. Uh, the rights were based on historical production shares. And over time, there was a market created for this quota to let high-cost producers sell to low-cost producers. And uh, over time, as we've talked about, that quota has uh, obtained value. And so you build in this cost structure into the sector that raises up the cost of producing milk and makes Canadian farmers maybe less efficient than their counterparts uh, across the border. Well, I've heard that argument. I've seen lots of people say, oh, well, we, we just need to compete. Do we actually know? I've, I've seen lots of people say, oh, well, Canadian farmers are less efficient or they aren't less efficient. Do we know? Have, have, have we looked at it I lately? I don't think we've, we really know very well. And because one of the, one of the positives w- with uh, supply management is that you reduce the uncertainty. And with that reduction in uncertainty, you can invest in new technology. And Canadian dairy farms, while smaller, tend to have the latest technology. And I think the top end of Canadian dairy farmers are as cost competitive as those in in neighboring states, just because you know you've reduced that uncertainty and the level of investment that can be afforded uh, because of that. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's that, that's a point worth reiterating. I think that a we don't know perhaps people in positions like we are should be yeah. looking at that, but yeah. that there are probably very, that, that there's probably a range of costs out there, that there are still some people who are scraping by as mm-hmm. dairy farmers. They have the mm-hmm. asset of the quota, but they mm-hmm. are, are not. And we have some dairy farmers who are expanding, who are efficient, who are doing very, very well. And some people might even argue that that variability in cost might contribute to the value of quota as much as the price being too high. Right. In some ways, like the value of land, too. Yeah. You know, that there's, you know, who can afford it? It's the... It's the people who are the best at it. Right. Yeah. And so, sorry, I'm going to go back for a second. One of the arguments I've heard about supply management, and, and I'm not sure if this is specious or, or not, is that the stability we've created for dairy and other supply managed producers have provided some stability in rural communities and probably maintained some infrastructure for other producers. Again, I don't think that there's a lot of research on that yet, but th- does that hold any water with you? I think it does. And we, we did a little research on the, uh, the effect of environmental regulations on the location of barns yeah. and uh, where we're building permits issued for barns and trying to look at the relationship between those permits being issued and environmental regulations and testing something called the pollution haven hypothesis. Where does livestock, uh, does the livestock sector move to where the regulations are laxest? And we found just the opposite, actually, that uh, in Ontario, anyhow, that where the buildings were located is where it was intensive livestock production. And so you've created this infrastructure support. It's something called agglomeration economies is that you've got a whole network of support from feed dealers to dairy equipment people to, uh, you know, up the chain in terms of people that have expertise in dairy. And so that's why it tends to be located in in certain pockets of the province and 
and not, for example, in the Southwest, which is as productive as any region of the country. Yeah. Okay. So I think the the last question I'd like to, to cover, and I think you alluded to it a little bit, is that is the issue that Canadians pay too much for dairy products, right? That that we are artificially raising. Now, some will argue, well, we're not paying any tax dollars and we're charging. And others will say, well, we're not paying more for, for dairy products. Are consumers bearing the burden of supply management? They are in some ways. You know, that they, it's just somebody's got to bear the cost. and yeah. it's a, But it's spread over, you know, 33 million consumers. And the extent of it, though, is rather minimal because of the amount that we pay for food. And on average, consumers pay 10% of, or spend 10% of their income on food. And the amount that they spend on dairy is even less than that. So the, the financial penalty, let's say, is hard to notice, yeah. particularly since milk and, uh, and other dairy products are used as a loss leader in grocery stores. So it's hard to notice. The other is that, you know, we really, and you've made this point before, Mike, about, you know, how expensive are our clothes or running shoes or computers in uh, in the U.S. compared to Canada. So is it, you know, what's that relative price difference? And, and I think that's an important point. We've done some work this summer, actually, Al, looking at a lot of times if you see a news report and there's been, there have been some studies that have said, okay, well, here's the price of dairy in the U.S. and here's the price of dairy in Canada. Look how we're penalizing Canadian consumers. And I think what it misses is the fundamental fact that in many cases, we're paying more for more other things in Canada. So mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. we be paying a premium for supply management? Perhaps, but it's it's not fair to say, here's the difference. And, and I had a student this summer looking at prices in three Canadian markets, uh, Ontario, Alberta, and Quebec, and five U.S. markets, Michigan, Texas, Kansas, and a couple of others I don't remember. And while we did see a higher price for similar units and similar sizes in Canada for most supply-managed products, we also found higher prices for beef, which we produce here in Canada, for whole wheat bread, which Mm. is used with Canadian ingredients. We found it for broccoli. Now, for part of the year, we were getting broccoli in from the U.S., so you might expect it to be to be more expensive here because of the trucking. But now we're into broccoli season here in Canada when we're recording this here today, and it's still more expensive. Mm-hmm. There are products which are cheaper than the U.S., but there are a majority of the products we looked at were more expensive in the Canadian context, in Canadian retail, than they were in the U.S. retail. Yeah. Now, so we may be we may be paying a premium. Some will argue we're not, but the premium isn't all attributable yes, to supply I, yeah. management. I, I I agree. I think with that. I, first of all, though, I do think there is a premium just by the nature. There's, yeah. there's undoubtedly one. The extent of one is more subtle than just looking at a, a at that price. pure difference. Yeah, pure difference. The the other aspect, though, the other one of the, the negative aspects about who bears the cost is that it tends to be a regressive form. You know, that so those who are well off, won't feel the impact very minimally at all. Those who spend more of their money on dairy products, and those will be the poor, spend a disproportionate. So people, uh, opponents of supply management will point out that that 
price premium is a regressive tax that it's it's unfairly burdens uh, the poor. They will also argue that maybe the variability or the not the variability, but the the range of dairy products has been stifled because of the nature. People are comfortable with the system, and so there it hasn't. We haven't seen the innovation occur in the dairy processing side that that we would have without supply management. Now, again, we don't know if that would be the case. Uh, we don't know people's preferences. We That's don't, right. We, we don't know the economics of processing here in in mm-hmm. Canada for some of those. That's right. For some of those yeah. specialty products for the size of our market, lots of unknowns. So in the end, the, the bottom line is with, with milk supply management, there are pluses and minuses. We've made a policy decision. It's probably not as bad as some people would have us would have us believe, and it's probably not as pure as others would have us believe. Probably the truth is somewhere in the middle, although we haven't done a lot of work to, to, to really understand what it is. We're not hearing a, an overwhelming public outcry to change it. We're seeing pretty much universal support for supply management at the political level. Really, the status quo seems to be working. There isn't the the pressures to change the system from within Canada before NAFTA, yeah. before the NAFTA renegotiations. Yeah. So there has to be a reason for changing the system because mm-hmm. otherwise I I think that Farmers are relatively happy with it. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, there were some internal pressures for potentially changing the system because of the way that quota could be allocated and expanded. That has been relieved temporarily anyhow. Uh, But it is just as if the initiation was a policy decision. What happens with its continuation is going to be a policy decision. And they're going to, the government's going to have to balance the pros and cons. Um, yeah. There are trade-offs with any decision. You know, yeah. if it was if it was what we economists refer to as Pareto optimal, everybody wins. It'd be easy yeah. to decide. But yeah, with any policy decision, uh, including the continuation of of supply management, they're going to be winners and losers. And so the policymakers are going to have to balance that out. Good. Well, hopefully, people have a bit better context and understanding of of, of what this broader discussion is. And that it's a little bit more nuanced than many of the sound bites we hear in, in the media. And so I thank you for taking the time to have a conversation. I look forward to having another one. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Molly Gallant for producing the podcast and Zachary Von Masso for the music that breaks up the introduction and in, in the actual discussion. And I encourage you, if you're interested, to look up some of our other episodes, stay in touch. You can find them at foodfocuswealth.ca, which is a a website that includes not only the podcast, but a blog and other topics of interest in food. You can pick up other episodes of the podcast there, as well as iTunes and other places that you find podcasts. I hope you will come back and listen again.